This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. This week, we continue our look ahead to next year at the themes we see driving markets and the most attractive opportunities on offer in rates, equities, and FX. This podcast is actually a special edition that is all about trade ideas. And even though you'll be hearing a lot from me, you'll thankfully also be hearing even more from loads of special guests. More on that in a moment. But first, a little housekeeping. I personally tend to think of year-ahead pieces as something of a necessary evil in many ways. While the annual P&L may reset on New Year's Day, it's not like the market knows that or behaves any differently simply because we've changed the calendar. So what you see from us is probably a little bit different than the year ahead pieces you read from our competitors and our clients in that we actually let the views guide the themes, not the other way around. Let me tell you how we do that. So every year, each member of the macro strategy team looks across markets and finds what they think is the best expression of their longer term outlook. These are formulated and written up completely independently of each other so we can avoid groupthink as best we can. And then when you mix it all together, what falls out is always interesting. We have actually had occasions where two views that are almost perfectly negatively correlated are written up. That disagreement itself becomes a talking point for us, and it highlights where market consensus might be easier to challenge, or it just may reiterate that there is no market consensus, as is so often the case. But usually, what we find are subtle patterns of agreement around which we can build the themes that we most want to concern ourselves for the coming months. And actually, this year, that happened more often than not. We did have some disagreement on the outlook for the dollar. We have some disagreement within the outlook for emerging markets. And implicit in some of our currency views, there probably is a little bit of disagreement on whether the carry trade that proved so successful in 2023 will carry on and have strong performance into next year. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get to the ideas that have coalesced around certain themes. And the first theme we're going to talk about is the prospect of a U.S. recession. There's a lot of debate on the prospects of a U.S. recession right now, whether the U.S. will actually have one, how severe it might be. There's a lot of debate within our own team about this, as we'll hear about later. But for our first view, which is my view, I'm going to go overweight treasuries, just keeping it real simple this year. Because growth probably is going to slow in the U.S., I'm fairly agnostic as to whether there will be a recession, but I'm very mindful that our own recession probability model, which I've mentioned a lot on this podcast over the last few episodes, is currently suggesting there's a 90% chance that the U.S. actually will contract over the coming 12 months or at some point in the coming 12 months. I don't really see U.S. inflation as nearly the problem it once was. We've seen in our price stats data substantial U.S. disinflation over the last few months, And it's not something that, for me, gives the Fed too much cause for concern, especially given we're starting to see tentative signs that the labor market is slowing. The long treasury view is also backed by very strong buying from our institutional investors that we capture in our flow information. There are very few obstacles to positioning on this. Holdings are actually quite underweight still. The buyers are still trying to keep up with rising supply. So for all those reasons, I think treasuries is just the very simple best expression of if not a recession, at least a substantially slower U.S. economy where the Fed is pivoting at some point in the coming year. For our next idea, Dan Girard went with something pretty similar, albeit a little bit more downbeat than myself. So let's hear from him on his idea on how to play a treasury overweight. 
2024 will be a year of relative opportunities, where the key will be figuring out where to hide, I think, rather than what will go up the most. Will we get rate cuts? Probably. How much? Who knows? But the anti-equity, anti-risk trade for this year will be to go long the short end of the treasury curve, with the sweet spot likely the two-year. This will be a year about minimizing regret. In a year's time, I think when we look back and see where valuations are with a world destined for a business cycle slowdown, combined with the financial deleveraging we know is coming, the idea of finding something with decent yield and upside potential should seem like it was an obvious choice. The long end of the curve has already rallied quite a bit coming into this year, and as it fights with rising term premium, more supply, and obstacles to demand, it's the short end that really does seem like the sweet spot for a longer-term theme. Recession risks are, of course, not just a U.S. phenomenon, as we'll talk about later in the podcast. In fact, U.S. equity markets may well weather a growth slowdown better than most, as our next two guests highlight. First, Maria Veitmane, our global head of equity strategy, talks through a trade that will be familiar to just about anyone who knows her. Like me, Maria is keeping it pretty simple and straightforward this year. I've recommended U.S. stocks last year, and I'm recommending them again this year. In fact, I've been, I, I loved U.S. stocks for over a decade now. Ever since one where a astute client told me that at the time when you're worried about economic growth, uh, earnings slowdown, you have to find the best companies you can. And indeed, that's exactly what U.S. companies are offering. They are the most profitable companies in the world. Average return on equities in U.S. is about 300 basis points higher than uh, global average. Uh, we'll what is always uh, pointed out to us, U.S. companies are crowded, U.S. companies are expensive. No question about that. We're not going to push back on valuation. What we, we are going to push back on is this idea that if recession is coming, if earnings are slowing, you really shouldn't be buying value stocks. You should be buying quality stocks. You should be buying large cap stocks. You should be buying companies that protect you during the downturns. And that's really U.S., There was a piece of Maria's idea that actually wound up on the cutting room floor. These were the sector details behind a U.S. equity overweight, which our next guest, Kayla Sater, actually also included in her idea. So I'm going to let Kayla have the honors here. So I think that U.S. tech sector is what's going to outperform in 2024. The first reason is profitability. Let's be honest, it's pretty hard to beat U.S. tech earnings. And when we look at relative earnings momentum, we still see a better earnings outlook for tech than the rest of the market. The sector also offers really strong quality. Balance sheet strength does matter, especially in the current interest rate environment. And the U.S. tech sector is just flush with cash, and a lot of this cash is earning interest on those balance sheets. The sector also presents lower leverage risk, and this is what we want to see when credit is becoming just really harder to come by. So it's this combination of profitability and quality that make tech worth the price. Valuations aren't cheap, but they actually have been more expensive in the past and could get more expensive from here. When we look at our proprietary data, institutional investors are adding to their overweight positions. Really putting that positioning into context is helpful here because in the past, positions have been higher than they are today. So they could get higher from here and there's still some room to add. So This is really why I think U.S. tech is just too good of an opportunity to miss out on and should outperform into next year. The Fed pivoting and cutting rates at some point this year seems pretty likely. The Fed themselves project that they'll do so. But this won't likely be happening in the U.S. alone. In fact, you could make the case that nearly every G10 central bank has the potential to cut rates this year. 
every G10 central bank that is, save one, the Bank of Japan. That takes us nicely to our second big theme, central bank policy pivots and four ideas that we see as the best opportunities to capture divergence between the paths these institutions take. The BOJ provides the potentially hawkish shift that stands out here, but we'll conclude the four ideas with what is a little bit of a contrarian call. But first up, Noel Dixon shares his thoughts. My year ahead trade is to go short CAD yen. The reason I like this idea is largely from the CAD side of the cross. I think countries like Canada with interest rate sensitive real economies are certainly going to be put to a bigger test in 2024, mainly due to the composition of their mortgage market. Next year, tidal wave of mortgages are coming up for renewal, uh, say in the next 12 to 24 months, and the average mortgage payment is on track to increase by about 15% by the end of 2024. Canada, fortunately, has made progress on inflation, both on core and headline inflation. Um, So I think they'll be in a position where they'll have the cover to obviously cut rates. And I think they need to uh, probably cut rates more aggressively than what rate markets are pricing in. Ultimately, the BOJ is going to have to, I think, normalize uh, rates from negative to positive. And also, they're going to have to be more aggressive as it relates to yield curve control. Put it together, yen is certainly an ideal candidate to be be long. I think it'll catch a, a good bid next year. Next, Marvin Lowe has an idea on how to take a similar view to Noel's currency view, but in fixed income markets. My year ahead trade idea is to short JGBs against the long gilts position. With policymakers expected to cut rates around the globe next year, we think that this trade offers the greatest degree of policy divergence. At the center of it is the BOJ abandoning its YCC policy, something that we think it's well on its way given all the policy tweaks that it's done over the course of the last year. There's certainly plenty of reasons for them to abandon YCC. One is that inflation is now on target. Two, the BOJ is increasingly worried about further distorting their bond markets. And three, yen weakness continues to rumble in the background. We chose to pair this against a long gilts position because the UK is emerging as the weak man within Europe. The economic headwinds are piling up and certainly getting stronger, and expectations around the BOE are amongst the least aggressive of the major central banks. So in this trade, we could actually see higher Japanese bond yield against potentially more aggressive rate cuts from the BOE as recession risks pile up. A long yen view also features in Mr. Risk's FX idea for 2024, but in this case, it actually doesn't require a policy pivot from the BOJ to work. My trade is short dollar yen. There are three reasons why I like this trade. A good starting point when it comes to making the case for a short dollar yen is valuation based on G10 currency deviation from their respective 10-year rear average. Yen is the cheapest of the lot. Valuation is notoriously bad when it comes to timing a trade. It merely implies there's potential for outperformance. The key for timing will be U.S. yields. Assuming that the Fed is done and cuts rates in 2024, relative yields point to downside for dollar yen. Finally, there's evidence that the real Japanese yen oscillates to a 98-month cycle, fitting to a sideways says the cross is bottoming and points to a stronger yen over the next couple of years. The argument for long yen does not reference BOJ monetary policy exit, or the possibility of an MOF intervention, although they cannot be ruled out and would certainly be additional helpful developments. Not everyone is so downbeat on the prospects for the dollar this year, and that brings us to the first real point of contention we have within the team. Let's hear from Lee Farage, 
who else really on that? Probably no surprise to a lot of you that short sterling is my favorite trade for the year ahead. But this is a relative rate story. I'm pairing this short sterling view against the dollar. The market is pricing only 60 basis points of cuts from the Bank of England over the next 12 months, with the first cut not arriving until September. For the Fed, we have 125 basis points of cuts priced in, and the first cut comes in May. And yet, when I look at the performance of the two economies, it's stark. The US is growing at 3% year on year, almost double trend growth. The UK is on the brink of recession. Yes, UK inflation is higher, but it's coming down fast. US inflation is coming down, but slowly. The idea the Fed are going to start cutting aggressively in the early part of next year makes no sense to me. Whereas if the UK goes into recession, there's every chance the Bank of England starts cutting before the Fed. This is why when I look at sterling up at 126, 127, that makes no sense to me. I think sterling is going to underperform significantly next year against the dollar. I, I expect it below 120 and maybe even towards 115 by some point in the middle of the year. The dollar side of Lee's view and the yen side of Noel and Fred's ideas, if they play out, could complicate some of the ideas in the third big theme that emerges from our set of views. The idea that carry and yield-seeking strategies will be appealing again in the new year. Mostly thanks to yen weakness, 2023 was a good year for carry strategies. A few high yielders like Turkey and the RAND underperformed, but exceptions proved the rule, right? Within the carry theme, we have three ideas dominated by emerging markets and developed markets with close EM ties. First up, Michael Metcalf. So I got to start, Tim, that my plan A was actually a long, long dated treasury trade, which uh, it was absolutely identical to yours. So I went plan B. Uh, plan B is quite different, though. So my, 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 my second idea doesn't really require very much to change at all. It doesn't need rates to fall. In fact, if anything, quite the reverse. And so it's based off the observation that FX vol has remained very low uh, in spite of the volatility we've had in rate markets. Uh, and of course, the fact that we've now got interest rate differentials across G10 economies are now back. And so uh, that environment uh, should be very constructive for carry. I actually think you can construct a carry trade for 24 uh, that takes advantage not just of carry, but also valuation and growth. Uh, and I've done that through the Aussie-Swiss pairing. Um, so that's obviously funding in Swiss. The Swiss franc is still overvalued. The economy, uh, like the rest of the Eurozone area, is rolling over, not helped by the Swiss valuation, I would say. And so I think if there's anywhere that can deliver some of the rate cuts expected for next year, it's the SNB. At the other side of the equation, Australia, uh, inflation has been sticky as it has been elsewhere, but actually rate cut expectations haven't really got carried away in Australia yet. You Maybe just a little bit of hope uh, that we get some stimulus in China and Aussie gets reassessed. So uh, Aussie-Swiss plays a nice relative growth. Uh, the Aussie of, of the high yielders is relatively attractive valuation relative to the Swiss franc, uh, and you get a little bit of carry as well. Our head of emerging market strategy, Dweevor Evans, is next with a pretty turbocharged EM carry view. So my idea for 2024 is to focus on favorable rates and foreign exchange trends in the Brazil market. Uh, the evidence from the Price Stats Brazil series is that inflation in Brazil 
uh, having been on a persistent disinflationary trend, has become well anchored at around 2.5% year on year. Uh, the BCB has been quite explicit in stating that policy can be less restrictive going forward, and that provides some continued support for local interest rate curves. But also concerns around fiscal policy look to be overdone, given the commitment to keep a zero fiscal target unchanged for next year. And of course, real yields in Brazil are significant and among the most significant uh, in global markets. That real yield story is also supportive for the currency in terms of carry. But in addition, we note that real money investors are underweight the Brazilian real and valuations are attractive. An exposure to Brazilian fixed income and at the same time layering effectively a double whammy in terms of gains from potentially from the currency as well underpin what should be a favorable year next year for Brazilian assets. To round out the carry theme, we also had an idea from Ning Sun from our EM team. Ning's actually on vacation at the moment and couldn't record. And if you think Dwivor was bold and going long Brazilian bonds unhedged, Ning one-ups him with the view that at long last, it's time to buy Turkey. With the Fed seen easing this year, inflation in Turkey making tentative signs of improvement, and their external position much improved and the current account back in surplus, Turkish government bonds are Ning's preferred trade for the year. Assuming the market continues to warm to Turkey's new economic team, foreign bond holdings are really low and have plenty of scope to build. Ning's swinging for the fences here. Bon chance, I say. Continuing in emerging markets, we come to theme four, the likelihood that the Chinese economy is still not quite on solid enough footing and that further easing is necessary to support activity. While this may be good for certain asset markets, as we'll hear about in a moment, it may not be so good for the renminbi in the near term. Let's hear from Yu Ting Xiao from our team in Hong Kong on that. I like the idea of shorting CNH against the CFAX basket for 2024, given that um, the current level of basket is still looking to be too strong, despite the weakness of the renminbi that we saw for a better part of this year, given that China is still on the course of easing policy and the founder for carry trade status won't change in the near future, and the real estate sector will likely to have a continued impact on the economy that's going to erode the confidence of domestic home buyers and consumers, as well as international investors. So that means the risk of recovery remains sluggish and capital flight is still there, given that policymakers are now on a much more moderate course when it comes to stimulus. So looking ahead, if dollar were to weaken as market expected, given China's low beta nature, it's going to be relatively small when you look at the currency adjustment compared to the basket. And if dollar were to remain strong for the higher for longer story, then in an environment where importance of exports is unparalleled, given how much other currencies have weakened, their renminbi could still weaken against the basket. The trades from Yuting's colleague Ben Luck probably could have been put under the carry theme, but really, it's more of a cross-asset view that will be supported by regional easing. He can tell you more. My year-ahead idea is on long duration across Asia. Uh, history has really indicated to us that there's a 100% chance that U.S. yields tends to compress over the next 12 months once we have passed the last rate hike. So really how best to long duration in Asia, starting off with equities, it's really all going to be about Taiwan and Korean equities, given their concentration in tech. Uh, earnings growth has really disappointed over the last few years, but earnings expectation is starting to rebound and it's actually going to be much higher uh, in 2024 relative to the EM average. 
when we come to the bond space, we would like to receive rates in Indonesia. Indonesia has been the most impacted of late due to obviously narrowing of spreads against U.S. Treasuries. As we anticipate that the Fed has already entered peak rates, we also believe that Asian central banks will soon follow as markets start to price in more cuts following what we have actually seen in the G10 space. All in all, we actually see that Asia over the last few years have underperformed, which meant that the region remains to be undervalued and underowned. And we anticipate that 2024 looks to be much brighter for Asia, especially in the equity space uh, via Taiwan and Korea and in the bond space via Indonesia. Finally, not unrelated to the slowing in Asia, we have our final theme, the notion that Europe will continue to struggle this year. We haven't spent much time on Europe on this podcast. A lot of bad news is priced into the currency. The ECB is now priced to ease the most aggressively of the G10 central banks. And the euro area's economic woes and exposure via energy markets to regional conflict, are they're hardly unknowns. But pockets of the European equity market have actually still performed pretty well this year. But as we're about to hear, that could be poised to change. Anthe Tsuvali rounds out our views, and this is definitely a case of last, but certainly not least. Anthe tends to win the Shark Tank presentations at our annual research events. She had the best performing trade idea on the team last year recommending U.S. tech stocks. And she's always posting some of the best scores on the doors in these year-ahead pieces. Take us away, Anthe. Underweight European industrials. At the beginning of 2023, European industrials outperformed on expectations that Chinese reopening will boost manufacturing activity. Well, that did not materialize, but industrials continue to outperform. Current earnings expectations are still elevated, but as global demand continues to slow and spending has dried up, it actually seems that interest rates will remain higher for longer. Peak fundamentals are at risk. So it seems very obvious to me. Time to sell overvalued and overweight European industrials. There you have it. Five themes, a boatload of trade ideas, and a lot of food for thought. We'll be back later this week when Lee, Dwivor, Maria, and I have a roundtable discussion of these themes, the outlooks for the major economies and the markets that we didn't get a chance to cover, and I'm sure a bunch of other topics that I haven't even thought of yet. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication 
Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.